Welcome to the Reach Podcast with your pastor, Philip Jackson. We are in a series of lessons where we are looking at human relationships between uh, men and women. Uh, Primarily, we're looking at uh, what a healthy sexual relationship looks like between a husband and a wife. And the reason why this is relevant to you, even if you are a young adult and you're not married, is that uh, in order for you to know what you're striving for, what you're looking for, uh, you, have to, you have to understand what the, uh, the real deal is, the real article is. And so we're looking at what godly sexuality looks like in the Bible. This is a book that is uh, not talked about very much, um, but there's some great truth here in how we approach relationships. And as you guys navigate dating and as you navigate engagements and your friends getting married and engaged and all those things, it's important for you to have a, an understanding of what is true um, because the world is very good at producing counterfeits and um, counterfeits are dangerous. They're dangerous because we carry into our long-term relationships the mistakes of our past and also the expectations of our past. And we think, oh, by the time we get married, everything's going to be good. And here's the deception. The deception is that, okay, well, uh, we talk about the trajectory at reach. We talk about, okay, well, here's how my life is going to go. Because people have been telling me, my parents have been telling me since I was a kid, that I'm awesome and I'm special and I'm perfect and all these things, right? I don't know, about, have you, I don't know if you figured this out yet or not, but you are not special, you're not perfect, and you uh, are going to make some really bad mistakes in your life. If you haven't realized that yet, I'm so sorry, but that's coming. Uh, but what happens is we think, okay, so we, we, people start asking us the question when we're young, okay, what are you going to do with your life uh, instead of who are you going to be? And so we start associating what we do for a living as our value or maybe the relationship that we're in. And so it's like, okay, I graduate high school. If you're one of those lucky few that graduate high school, you're like, okay, awesome. I can go conquer the world now. And it's like, okay, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to go get the degree. And then what happens when like, so we have all these data points. It's like, oh, look this way. Graduate high school, get the degree, meet the guy, the girl, get married, get the job, buy the house, buy the car, buy all the stuff. What happens whenever we like graduate high school and like, we feel like we're flatlining. It's like, wow. I'm not that impressive. God can't use me, or maybe I've made, he's made a mistake. Or it's like, okay, yeah, I graduated. Okay, now I've got the associate's degree. Well, okay, there's, that's an accomplishment. That's awesome. Okay, well, now everybody else has a bachelor's degree, or everybody else has a master's degree, or whatever. Or they get the job, and you start to see your peers getting married, and you start to see them doing all these things. It's like, what is the matter with me? And so naturally, the thing that will fix it is, I'm just going to get married, right? Because that's just the way that the world works, Right? Uh, get married, I'll be happy. You know, so we don't ever deal with the problem inside of us, and we continue to try to fill that void with things that are outside of us, and we realize that all those things leave us empty. So the reason why this is relevant for us is that uh, we study God's Word so that we can know what is the truth. And uh, tonight, we've, so we've been, we've been walking through this book. This is our second-to-last lesson in this series. And uh, we've been watching Shulamith, who's the woman, and the shepherd, the shepherd man, her lover, her husband, and we've watched them dance back and forth, deal with their relationship, and deal with all of the issues that go along with that of being two human beings that are dealing with broken situations. And then we also have the king over here, who's kind of this, this uh, figure who is promising all of the, the nice and special things in life, but there's no substance. 
Now, um, if you remember last week, uh, Shulamith had a dream. She had a dream that her man had, had uh, came to her and was wanting to come, come into her bedroom to be with her, to have special time with her, and to just be in community with her. And she was lazy in how she approached that. And she was dismissive about his advances and dismissive about his sincere effort to be with her and to be in relationship with her. And so she dismisses him only to find out, okay, well, he's finally gone away. So she gets up. She takes her time going to the door. She realizes that he's gone. And so she runs out the door, and she's just desperately trying to find him. And so she's asking everybody where they've, where they've seen him, if they've seen him. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up that same search uh, tonight. We're going to pick up our story with Shulamith and uh, her realization. If you remember the end of chapter 5, you have this uh, recollection of all of the great things about her her lover that she remembers, the daughters of Jerusalem who represent the harem of the king. They ask her, what's so special about this guy? And so she recounts all these things about him that she remembers are so amazing. And so she's going to, after she's had that recollection, she's going to come to her senses. This is where we're going to start in verses 1 through 3. Song of Songs, chapter 6, begins right here. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? This is the daughters of Jerusalem talking to her. Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices to shepherd his flock in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He who shepherds his flock among the lilies. Okay, there's, remember there's, there's imagery here. This is, these, are, these are word pictures. So after she's thought about, okay, this is my guy. This is all the things that are special about him. She says, man, you know what? Where's he gone? And she reflects, you know, I, I, I miss him. I, I realize that I'm missing something, and uh, I need to go find him. And so after she describes who he is, she comes to this realization that, man, he was incredible. And so what she does is she recollects, okay, where could he be? She says, um, he's gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices. Now, there's some things here in the verse, first verse that I want you to see. Whenever she stops to think about her relationship with this man, with her husband, she begins to realize the truth. See, before this, she's been chasing all of these fantasies, these, emo these emotional responses to her situation. And so she's trying to desperately take control of her, of her relationship. And so she's doing all the things that you shouldn't do to try to be in a healthy relationship with somebody. So she's smothering it. She's trying to, to work things out on her own. And after she stops to ponder the truth about her husband... She begins to realize, man, this is different. I should have remembered this. So after she goes through this process of working through all of the things that, that are the elements of her relationship, she realizes that she loves him. And she's not desperate anymore. She realizes that there's strength in their relationship. So think about this. The way that she describes her man, the daughters of Jerusalem, they say, well, this guy's pretty amazing. We want to come help you find him. And uh, this leads to, this uncovers an important truth about how we talk about relationships. Okay, so um, there's kind of this tongue-in-cheek uh, joke, you know, guys refer to their wives or their significant others as their ball and chain, right? Or their old lady. That's an old, cool, old school term people would use. Like, yeah, that's my old lady. My favorite is when guys have, they've been married to the same woman their whole marriage, like 30, 40 years. And they're like, yes, this is, this is Lindsay, my first wife. <laughs> She's the only one, but she is my first wife. It's like, man, how, like, 
how we talk about our spouses, how we talk about our significant other is important because it frames people's expectations about that person. So after she has described her lover, after she's described this man, this important person in her life, she begins to realize that she has really whetted the appetites of these ladies. They're like, man, who is this guy? I want to meet him. So remember, there's two pictures that we're looking at here. We have the picture in Song of Songs of a man and a woman together in their relationship in a covenant marriage. But then we also have the dual meaning of Jesus' relationship with his church, his bride. So I want you to ask this question of yourself. How are you talking about your relationship with Jesus? How do you talk about your relationship with our groom? Because it matters. And how does he talk about you? Okay, do you say, oh man, you know, I wish I could do this thing, but man, the big guy upstairs, he won't let me do it. Man, I would love to, to do these things, but you know what the rules say. You know what, oh, I'm going to get in trouble with him, the guy up there, the rule maker. Oh, he's so tough on me. Guys, I wish I could go to the, see that movie with you, but you know, God is just really just, man, he just got me under his thumb. What does Scripture say about how God talks about us? Psalm 127 says that we've been made on purpose for a purpose. Ephesians 2 says that we are loved and cherished by him. It says also that we were, well, while we were slaves to our sin, he made us alive in Christ. He says that we are pure and righteous because of Jesus. He calls us his royal priesthood and his cherished family. It says that he shares his glory with us. Scripture says that we are an intimate and treasured possession. So how do you talk about Jesus? How do you talk about your relationship with God? Do you only refer to the Savior that you profess in negative terms? Or do you speak about him as sweetly as he talks about you? When you talk about Jesus and your relationship with God, are people hungry for what you have with him? Or is he just your ball and chain? In verses 2 and 3, Shulamith responds to, the, her, to their question with a description of where he is. She says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to, to the beds of spices, to the shepherd his flock in the gardens, and gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and he is mine. He who shepherds his flock among the lilies. Says that she, uh, she realizes, okay, he's gone. But where would he be? This language here describes him going back to work. Why else, why else would, would, uh, would he stick around? The city is not a place for him. Remember, she's scoured the city. Last week we said she's been scouring the city trying to find him, but then she can't find him there. Well, of course, where's he going to be? He's going to be where he should be. Remember, this guy's a man of the woods. He's a man of the mountains. He's a man who, who goes and seeks adventure. So she says he's gone to his garden. Now, other places in this, in this uh, book, the garden has been a metaphor for uh, intimacy, for sexual in intimacy between the two of them, but it doesn't quite fit here in this language. So we've got to take it literally that he went back to work. Of course, he wasn't in the city. He wouldn't be there chasing pleasure and vice. Instead, he would be diligently working because that's consistent with his character. But she also realized that she had let her emotions get the best of her. After she had spent time thinking about him, she realized that he hadn't abandoned her. He was still faithful. He wasn't out there chasing something else. He was waiting. He was being faithful. This uncovers another important thing for us that I want you to realize is that the world builds everything on emotions. Emotions are not bad things, but the world purely focuses on emotions. Everything has to be immediate, has to be uh, gratifying has to be the most extreme. 
Think about it. Why do they why do they take half naked people to sell perfume? Why do they take uh, the most luxurious lifestyles to sell cars? Why do they do all of these incredible, all these extreme things? Why are why are dramas so compelling? Why are why is garbage TV so appealing? It's because the world builds everything on emotion. On emotion. I love what Pastor Michael says that emotions make great companions. They're great to have with you, but they make lousy leaders. Emotions make great companions, but they make lousy leaders. So as she reflects on the truth, she realizes that she had made a mistake. This leads us to a very important understanding that the truth is, is, has to be the foundation of our lives because it will help us understand what is true and, and what is not when our emotions get the best of us. Your emotions are like the warning lights on the dash of your car. When they start blinking, you know that you have a problem, right? But if it says that you have low tire pressure, does it mean that you need to like panic and call 911? No. No, the answer is no. But what it does is it indicates, okay, there's something that I need to evaluate here. we got to know what the truth is, and that's what the truth does. She says that he's gone to feed his flock in the gardens to gather the lilies. When the maiden thought about where her beloved would be, she remembered that he would be doing his work, feeding his flock, and that he would be uh, always looking to show his love for her, gathering lilies. Notice that he's not pining away, sulking in a dark room. He was diligent in his work. A man of God is not, will not use the difficulties of any situation as an excuse for laziness or sloth. Even in a time of trouble, he will be found diligently with his hand on his plow, tending to his responsibilities. Think about Jesus. When we refuse to be obedient to Jesus and we refuse to be in one with him, in fellowship with him, abiding in him, does he, does he throw up his hands and like, well, I guess I just got to wait on them? Or does he continue to do what he has always done? In the same way, we can see a healthy relationship here that whenever this woman who has hurt him deeply, he didn't use it as an excuse to go binge on something that would be sinful. He didn't use it as an excuse to go do whatever he want, say that I'm on a break or something. He actually kept his word and kept his reputation. So he was back at work. She says something interesting here. At the end of verse 3, she says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. This is an important description of the idea of oneness. Now, she has said this before. She said this in, in, in chapter 2, verse 16. But when she said it the last time, she said, My beloved is mine and I am his. Now, here she says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. There's an interesting change in phrases here. Because the first time she focused on the fact that she belonged to him, and this time she recognizes that he belongs to her. This reinforces the truth that marriage is not about two independent people building separate lives. It's about complete unity. So that means that we need to understand something. When you commit to be in a relationship with someone for the rest of your life in a covenant marriage, that means that you are committing to be one with that person. Their goals become your goals. Their lifestyle becomes your lifestyle. Their traditions become your traditions. This is why it is incredibly important to be very careful about who you marry. You cannot chase and build a relationship on sex because sex is the most, uh, most uh, volatile form of a relationship. When you become one with someone in a marriage, in a covenant marriage, you become one with them emotionally, you become emotion, uh, one with them physically, and you become one with them spiritually. There's no separation between the two. Now the shepherd is going to respond. Look at this in verse 10, verse 4. 
You are as beautiful as tears of my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they, are over, for they have overwhelmed me. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have leapt down from Gilead. We've talked about that before. We'll come back to it. For those that are new, that's kind of weird. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost their young. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Now, remember, he's, remember the word darling. My darling means my sweet friend, my, my loving friend, my best friend. This isn't just a, a source of his sexual appetites. This is a woman that he, that he genuinely cherishes. So he describes her in some familiar ways. He says that she's beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. He compares her to the beauty and stature of the maiden to these beautiful noble cities. Tirzah and Jerusalem, um, and she was impressive. Tirzah was an ancient Canaanite city in the north. Uh, when the divided kingdom happened after the, after the reign of Solomon, whenever his son took over, um, Tirzah became the capital city of the northern ten tribes. This is essentially before the, the kingdom split apart. In, uh, in Second Kings, what happened was that Tirzah was basically the, the, the vacation getaway of kings. So he says, you're as beautiful as Jerusalem and you're as beautiful as Tirzah. This, this name, this, 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 this city is actually named something. It translated specifically as beautiful or delightful. He says that she is like an army with banners. She's a symbol of power and might. Now, wait a second. I thought he just got offended by this girl. I thought that she just really hurt him. I thought that she rejected him and they were, they were, their relationship was on the rocks. This doesn't sound like a guy who's pissed off at her. It doesn't sound like a guy who's spiteful, who wants to make sure that she understands just how badly she hurt him. He describes her in ways that seem oddly affirming. That's interesting. Have you ever, have you ever thought about this? An army with banners... You probably have seen movies with ancient armies of the show. You know, you have, you have uh, different segments of the army that have different purposes. You have the infantry, and you have the cavalry, you have the archers, and you have the heavy infantry. You have all of these, these different units, right? And each unit had a banner. This is this long pole with a flag on top. And the banner was a symbol for communication, but also was a symbol of power and strength. And so the general or the king would say, okay, send in the archers, send in the heavy cavalry, send in the infantry, and he was able to deploy his army and show strength. Imagine the sight of standing and looking at a battlefield and seeing a massive sea of people and all of these banners. It indicates strength. So take note of this, that there's no revenge in his voice. He was the offended one, and yet... He's the one to quickly point out who she is. She should not let her mistakes pervert her understanding of who she is. Think about what God does for us. We come to him again with our offenses and we say, God, I've messed up again. I'm so bad at this. I'm so bad at this righteousness thing. I'm so bad at this sanctification thing. Here I am for the 10 millionth time confessing the thing that I swore I would never do again. And yet he says things like, I love you and you are treasured. And you are powerful, and you are something to be acknowledged. You are my precious child. You are my son or my daughter of heaven. You are someone that I died for. Many years ago, I met a man. His name was Eddie. Eddie grew up on the south side of Chicago in the, in the, in the, in the gang-ridden slums. 
He saw his dad get killed in front of him when he was seven years old with a broken beer bottle in a bar. Eddie is covered with tattoos from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Has done every kind of drug you can imagine, has sold every kind of drug you can imagine. He's a radical Jesus chaser now. And you know what he told me once? He said, Philip, God don't make no junk. So when we come to God and we say, God, oh man, I really messed up in this relationship. I've really, I've taken you for granted. I've done all of these things. God, God, please, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Thinking that he's going to come down with a lightning bolt and say, yeah, you really did mess up. Yeah, you really did screw up. Yeah, I really can't use you. You got to do all these things and, and check all these boxes before you're, you're good enough for me again. And you know what he says? Because God is separate from time. He sees us from our conception to our death. He sees our life comprehensively and he says, you know what? Yeah, you're right here. Okay, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. You're right on time. I love you still. I love you just as much today as I did the day that I saved you. I love you just as much today as the day that I died for you when you weren't even conceived yet. He speaks truth about his bride. Notice what he says. He says, turn your eyes away from me for they have overcome me. He says, don't look at me. Your eyes melt my heart and I'm overwhelmed. Consider that even though she is hurt and rejected him, he still is enraptured in his love for her. He doesn't require an apology, although it would be no doubt accepted. Instead, his first response is to tell her that his love is unchanged and still as sensitive as it was in the beginning. One writer put it this way. He says, but it is otherwise in Christ, majesty and love, even unto ravishment, meet in his holy heart. If the Christ be sick of love toward him, she should, be, she should know that he is overcome with love towards her and that there is no love lost between them. Charles Spurgeon related Song of Psalms 6-5 to Jesus and the church, noting that Jesus is overcome with love when he looks upon the church. This means something very important for us. For those who are the children of God, God is overwhelmed with love for us. I want you to write this down. God is love, not revenge. God is love, not revenge. What does the enemy try to do? He tries to convince us to not come to him with our problems. He tries to convince us that somehow God's, gonna, God's mad at us. He's waiting to beat us over the head as soon as we acknowledge what we've done. God already knows what we did. He's got one expectation from you, and that's you're going to be a sinner. You think that you surprise him by your sin? You think he's like, oh, man, they were so close. I guess you're out. No. Our God is not a God of small things. He's a God of great things and big things. He's not a God of revenge. He's a God of love. And so he begins to praise her. He works his way from the top of her head down to the bottom of her feet. And he talks about her hair again, the flock of goats. Remember, this is what he talks about in Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. He refers to the black-haired goats of the, of the area that as they, as they run down the mountain, they cascade and their black, their black fur shines in the sun. It would be a common temptation for a division like this to undermine the confidence of this maiden. The battle of reconciliation rages in her mind. Man, this is the natural response of a human being, isn't it? I've just hurt this person and yet... They're being not just kind to me. They're being so oddly affirming. 
she would be asking herself quietly in her head, does he really love me? Is this real forgiveness or is he just saying this? Is he really mine and I am his? You see, the devil loves to make us insecure in our relationships, especially for women. And he will even use the wonderful gift of reconciliation against us and try to undermine the intentions of others by spreading doubt about it. So a genuine moment where God is doing real work between a woman and a man or between a friend and another friend, and you come to them and real reconciliation is happening, the enemy loves to come behind you and say, oh, man, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that. Or she doesn't mean that. She's just trying to manipulate you again. She's trying to get you to, to do whatever she wants you to do. But that's not the truth. So the lover continues his description in verses 8 through 10. Look at this. Now, I think this is awesome because he's going to transition here. He's going to transition. He's not going to talk about her physical appearance. He's going to talk about her character. He's going to talk about who she is as a person. Verse 8 there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number. She is the only one, my dove, my perfect one. She's the only one of my mother, of her mother. She is, the, she is the pure one of her who bore her. The daughter saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines also, and they praised her, saying, Who is this that looks down like the dawn, as beautiful as the, moon, as the full moon, as pure as the sun, as majestic as an army with banners? He starts off by saying there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, the only one. This goes beyond the description of the maiden's beauty recorded in previous verses. Here he praises the maiden in comparison to other women. You see, it's important, vital even, for a wife to feel not only beautiful but preferred above others in the eyes of her husband. I've been married for a long time now, and I'm just now learning this. My wife knows that I know that she's beautiful. But she needs to be reminded regularly that she stands above every other woman. That she is cherished and loved, that she is beloved, and she is my darling. And in the same way, when God looks at us and we say, you know, we're small, no, we're little little pieces of dirt. No, we're just pond scum. He says, no, no, you're not. How do we know what something is worth? We judge it by what someone will pay for it. So what was the price of your life? It was the blood of an almighty God who chose to subject himself to all of the human trials that we experience just so that he would be able to relate to you and be able to say two words. I understand. I understand. He submitted himself to time and space and walked on this earth as a human being. He saw friends die. He saw friends leave him. He gave his heart to people and they crushed him. At the, most, at the worst part of his life, they abandoned him and left him alone. He was stripped naked in front of his whole community and beaten within an inch of his life. The skin torn off of his body. Aside from the physical pain, there was the emotional pain. There was the trauma. Let's talk about trauma. How about that? He was taken advantage of by everyone around him. And when they were asked about him, these are his closest, dearest friends. When they asked people about him, they lied about it and said that he was a stranger. 
And then they displayed him on a wooden cross in front of the whole community. They spit at him and they taunted him the whole time. They said, if you're really God, why don't you just call the angels down? What was his first response? He prayed and he said, God, don't just forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is an example of what it means to truly love someone, to be passionate about how we love someone. That is our value. His point here is that she has no reason to doubt his fidelity to her. Yes, she has hurt him. Yes, she has caused division. Yes, she has done all these things. Yes, she has caused tension within their relationship. But his love is unshaken for her, and no other woman can compare to her. He says, queens, concubines, and virgins. This speaks to her superiority to other women. We've talked about in previous lessons that uh, within a, a, a prominent harem in a palace, there would have been a collection of women from all different walks of life and all different seri uh, seriousness of, uh, of stations that you would have daughters of princes and daughters of wise men and daughters of kings, and they would be traded back and forth. To be a concubine or to be a wife, to be a queen of a king meant that you were a person of station. He says, all of these other women, you are far superior to them. You're special. And then he goes on to talk about her mom, her family. He says, he says, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her, this is a statement that emphasizes her favorite status. doesn't mean that she doesn't have any other siblings. It means that she is the choice child of her parents. He says that the daughters saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines they, concubines, they praised her. The greatness and beauty of the maiden was evident not only to the beloved, but also to her woman companions theoretically her rivals. This statement connects back to a previous verse. Not only does the lover tell her that she is without equal among the society, uh, but also would suggest that, that she is the most satisfying lover. They acknowledge her quality. I mean, after all, queens and concubines are known for their status as women of station and also for their sexual prowess. They've been trained to do this. They're, they're professionals. And yet we see here that they are the ones who praise her and elevate her to her lover. One writer put it this way. He says, one of the best ways to praise someone is to mention the nice things other people have said about the per that person. He says, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as the army with banners. Again, we see the statement about armies. Charles Spurgeon also said this. He says, he, he considered how the church was also awesome as an army with banners, emphasizing the idea that banners, uh, that the idea of the banners and how the church should be like an army bearing them. Think about this. That banners are, were carried for distinction so that the army could be clearly identified. Banners were carried for discipline so that the army could be organized in its work. Banners were carried as a sign of activity, indicating that something was about to happen. Banners were carried as a sign of confidence, willing to engage the enemy. In other words... Us, as the children of God, as the army of God, we hold a banner over us, the banner of Christ Jesus. And here's something that is very, very, very important. The Lord taught me this many years ago, that if you are part of a healthy community, God uses that to draw hurt people to be restored. That means that if you are walking with Christ, if you are abiding with him and you're seeing him do incredible things in your life, he will bring hurt people to you. And here's the sinful response. Ah, 
yeah, no, that's a lot of work. Man, it's a lot of work to love that person. It's a lot of work to really deal with that person's issues. Yeah, that's, I don't know, I don't want to commit to that. Or we, we despise that person and their, and their difficulty and their sinfulness. And we, we become haughty within ourselves and say, man, you're a dirty sinner. We don't, I don't know about that. But then we ask the question, when I was hurting and I needed to be, to be restored, who laid aside their priorities so that they could show me the way? There's been a series of men in my life who have seen me in my most desperate moments. And they have not just taken the time in the moment when I needed help, but they committed to a long process of my restoration. You see that God has given us a responsibility as his banner bearers to be beacons of hope, to be lights in the darkness, to be salt in a, in a broken world. So Shulamith, look at verses 11 through 12. She reflects on his love. I went down to the garden of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had flourished, whether pomegranates had bloomed. I did not know it, but my soul set me among the chariots of my noble people. She said she went down to the gardens. Presumably this is where her beloved was. She went to see him at work, to see the, the lushness of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded. The language here is describing the fresh shoots of spring. Right now we're in the, t- we're in the season where if you drive around, you'll see crepe myrtles beginning to bud in the spring. In the wintertime when they're dead, they're, they're, they're hacked off. They're usually about this tall, all cut off straight. And what you'll notice this time of year, you're going to start to see these little buds forming on the, on the stalks. She says, I'm going and I'm looking for the new growth, the fresh growth, the fresh green, green shoots. She says, I'm going to see where, if there's indications of life in our relationship. She says, before I was even aware, my soul had made me as chariots of my noble people. She says, basically, man, I am so, I feel so light right now. I feel like I'm riding a chariot. I feel like I've been swept off my feet. In the last section here, the shepherd declares his affection. Here we go. He's going to talk about her again. Oh, come back. Oh, come back. Oh, Shulamite, come back. Come back that we may behold you. The women are calling her to come back. We want to see you more. Oh, my goodness. This is, this is, this is uh, amazing to see the testimony of your life and your relationship with your lover. So verse, verse uh, 13 in chapter 6, the last part. Why should you behold the Shulamite as at the dance of two companies? He says, why would you look at me? Why would you consider me? I'm not anything special because it's just me. But what she doesn't realize is that she's a reflection of her lover. She's a reflection of the person who loves her, who has poured his heart out to her. So her response leads to another description of her beauty by the beloved. His commentary of her body is, is, is a direct answer to a question of why would anybody want to look at me? Look at these first, first verses of chapter 7. It says, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter, O noble's daughter. The curves of your thighs are like ornaments, the work of the hands of an artist. Your navel is like a round basin, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat encircling with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Now, more word pictures here. He says, how beautiful are your feet in sandals? Okay, that's a little weird. Now, here's the thing. So he's not saying, yeah, I'm a feet guy. What he's saying is, <laughs> he's saying the most common thing about you is awesome, is beautiful. He's saying 
the most ordinary things about your life are spectacular. He's saying, you're wonderful. He calls her a prince's daughter. What this means is that she's not necessarily a girl of royal birth, but rather that she is of gracious and noble character in person. He says how beautiful, uh, he says, talks about the curves of her thighs, her navel, her waist, about all these things. Now, he is literally talking about these things, but unlike before he, where he begins at the top of her head and moves down her body, this time he starts at her feet and he moves upward. He describes wine and wheat and a basin for foods. Basically, what he's doing, he's joining two images together where he's saying, you are a whole meal in front of me. That's exactly what he means. You guys didn't know that the, that the scripture was this saucy, but it is. <laughs> now, the reference to the lilies that encircled the stomach reminds us that we are dealing with figures with, whose very uh, ambiguity enriched the eroticism of the passage. He talks about her breasts satisfying her that gives us uh, imagery back that we looked at in Proverbs chapter 5, that she is to be gently handled and that she is to be taken care of. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> we were working on the house and I was uh, this weekend and uh, I was getting frustrated. I was doing, you know, putting flooring down and, and Lindsay and I were working together and she was like, babe, you got to be gentle with it. I was like, I'm trying. And I was getting frustrated. She was like, listen, two fawns of a gazelle. <laughs> and I was like, got it. <laughs> got it. Uh, verse 4, he says, Your neck is like a, a tower of ivory. Your eyes are like pools of, in Heshbon by the gate of Beth-Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which faces towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Carmel. It's a mountain. And the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your, by your tresses. A couple of things that are important here. We're almost finished. He says, Your neck is like an ivory tower. Remember, the neck in ancient literature symbolizes someone's character. Someone who had a stiff neck is someone who was proud. Someone who had a bent neck was somebody who was shame-filled. He says that your neck is like an ivory tower. In other words, you are noble and you're strong in character. He says your eyes are like the pools in Heshbon. Here, the deep beauty of the maiden's eyes is described. This reminds me of, there's a place in northeastern Oklahoma in Salina called Blue Hole. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Blue Hole. It is a spring-fed little pond, basically, and great people watching at Blue Hole. Um, but essentially what makes it awesome is that you're in the middle of nowhere, and uh, you get in the water, and it's ice cold all the time. All the time. Middle of the summer, 115 degrees outside, water's ice cold. And if you look down in the middle of Blue Hole, the reason why it's called that is because it's a deep deep blue, almost a purple. It's the coolest thing. He says, when I look into your eyes, it's like looking into the pools of Heshbon, just like the deep pool that can be limitlessly explored. So too are the eyes of his lover. He can get lost in them. Think about what Jesus said, that the eyes are the window to the soul. He says, when I look into your eyes, I see eternity. He says, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. The, there's a rock face that faces Lebanon. This is not talking about the size of her nose. It's talking about the color of her nose. There's a, there's a rock face that is uh, 
that's white. Remember, she used to say, she would say that I'm dark-skinned, I'm, I'm, I've been poisoned by the sun, don't look at me. And he says, no, your complexion's beautiful. You're perfect. He says, your head crowns you. A king is held captive by your tresses. The beauty of your hair is so striking that it can only be related to royalty. It's like purple. You see a, a dark, dark, dark-headed headed person. If you look at their hair in the sunlight just right, their raven hair looks almost purple. The word for tresses here, the root meaning is to run or to flow. So the, so the picture here is that her hair is cascading down her body. Notice something here that her head is the crown of her body, not her, not her intimate parts. He says that you are crowned with this incredible mind, this incredible personality. It's amazing. And lastly here, the description of his desire. He says, how beautiful and how pleasant you are, my love, with all your pleasures. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like, like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will seize its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. Whew, okay. <laughs> he says, how fair and pleasant you are, O oh love. Now, here's the thing. I committed to doing this, right? We're doing every verse. So I can't be like, all right, we're going to skip past this part, right? Some of you guys need to go take a cold shower. It's all right. Um, so he says this. It, it seems clear here that he's speaking, he's speaking more directly to her, okay, about his attraction to her and his desire for her. Now, I want, you, I want you to pay attention to this, right? Before we even got to this part, what has he acknowledged? He's acknowledged that he loves her. He's acknowledged her as a person. He's acknowledged that she is respectful, that she is valiant, that she is powerful, that she is independent, and that she is, uh, she is an incredible gift. He didn't just say, okay, great, now that you've apologized, we can get on with this. He acknowledged her as a person. Gentlemen, take note. Ladies, take note of your value. This is important. So he continues, he says, with your delights, this indicates how basic and wonderful his attraction was to her. That she, yes, he delighted in her and her character and all of these things, but he also was attracted to her physically. She delighted in him, obviously with her beauty and personality, but also with her character and his strength. I love what Isaiah 62, 5 says. It says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. He says, this stature of yours is like a palm tree, it's a statement of her character and her poise, not necessarily her actual physical height. He says, and your breasts are like its clusters. Let now your breasts be like the clusters of the vine. Seeing this great character and the beauty of his maiden, the beloved wanted her. He loved her for more than her body, but he also rightfully so wanted to enjoy the pleasures of her breasts and body in married lovemaking. He says that the fragrance of your breath should be like, is like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. The beloved told his maiden how pleasing and satisfying her lovemaking was to him. There's a very, very vivid, explicit picture here of their lovemaking. But notice something here. There's a very key point here in these last little, last little bit of Scripture. Verses, last part of verse 9 into verse 10. 
It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. She says, the wine goes down smoothly for my beloved. In other words, she echoes his desire that this is something that I want so badly. Flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. Moving, your, your Bible might say moving gently. The idea is that they have finished consummating their love together, and they are both, they are reconciled in person and in their relationship, and they are satisfied in their, in their activity together. And now... They are completely at peace. Just like someone who is resting fast asleep would might be mumbling words, she sees him moving his lips as he is falling fast asleep. Their relationship is at peace and is deeply satisfying. And I want you to notice this very last phrase. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is towards me. Think about where we started. She wakes up in the middle of a dream. She realizes that he's gone, and she's desperate, and she chases after him to find him. All the while, asking herself the question, what have I done? What have I done? Does he want me? Have I ruined this? Have I failed? Have I, me have I messed up? Will he ever forgive me? And yet we find her at the end of this passage of Scripture, and she says, this recollection that I am his... And he still desires me. This leads to a question for you. A very serious question about your life. About your relationship to God and your relationship to Jesus. That there are probably some of you in this room tonight that have been dealing with things that you feel like you can perpetually never get rid of. You think that there are parts of your life that God will never receive you back because of. You think that there are things that you are never going to get over. And in the back of your mind, you think, man, there's no way that I can come to God again. There's no way that I can ask for forgiveness again. There's no way that I can be made right again. There's no way that God can use me again. But think about Shulamith in this passage of Scripture. The richness of how she was received when she pursued him. The richness of the reconciliation the richness of the fulfillment of their relationship as it was restored, the greatness of the testimony of what they've gone through. What this means for you is that you need to understand that no matter what you have done or where you have gone or who you have, or, or, or what you, who you have done it with, that God cares for you, that there is forgiveness and it's not limited to the moment that you trusted in Jesus to be your Savior. To be loved and cherished by God means to be loved and cherished for eternity. God doesn't make promises halfway. And so if you are begging the question inside of your mind, like, how can God use me? How can I make this right? I don't understand. I want to encourage you that God sees you exactly where you are from your conception to your death, and He sees you exactly the point where you are in your life. The difficulties and the struggles of where you are. He says two things. He says, you are right on time. And the second thing, when you feel overwhelmed, those two words, I understand. So come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You overwhelmed, come to me. You feel guilty, come to me. You feel like I won't love you, come to me. God has made you on purpose for a purpose. Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. But God knows your sin. He calls you by your name. If you don't know Jesus, come talk to me. I'm here. I'll be here hanging out. Talk to Matt. He can help you. But I want you to know the sweetness of the relationship with with God through Jesus. And all it takes is that simple question. What do I do? Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.